Okay, good morning. How are ya? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't think I believe you. Are you all right? We're doing good? Okay, let me hear you. Good to, good to see you this morning. Those of you that are worshiping with us online, it's nice to have you. If this is your first time with us, like Pastor Brad said, my name is Andrew Arndt. I'm the lead pastor of New Life East, uh, which just celebrated its first birthday like a month or so ago. Isn't that incredible? We got about 450 people worshiping with us on Sundays out at New Life East, and it's amazing. So first birthday, uh, we're, um, we're starting to walk a little bit. We're still in diapers. We're cute. We make a mess here and there, but uh, come and visit us sometime. It's great. Uh, I'm in the book of Malachi, like Pastor Brad said, so if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to open to them. Malachi is the last of the 12 minor prophets, and the minor prophets, we've called them the everyday prophets because we don't really know a ton about them. But many of them are people like you and me that were inspired by the Spirit of God to bring a word to the people of God. And so Malachi uh, has this unique kind of historical location, and uh, his, uh, where he sits in the book of the Twelve, I think, is theologically important, which we'll get to towards the end of the message. But Malachi prophesies about a hundred years after the people of God have come back from exile and rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the city. So you might remember, brief history recap, quick, 722 BC, the Assyrian army conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. 586 BC, the Babylonian army conquered the southern kingdom of Judah. And with that, Israel's national life was absolutely shattered. And the Lord in his goodness and in his mercy, according to um, the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and others, he breathed upon his people while they were in exile and he woke them up out of their graves and brought them home. And in, uh, sometime in the, in the ballpark of 520 or so BC, they were brought back to the city and they were uh, given an opportunity to rebuild their national life. Malachi now prophesies about a hundred years after that took place. So they're back in the land, the temple has been reconstructed, everything is back together again. And still what we're discovering in Malachi is that the old habits of idolatry and unfaithfulness die hard among the people of God. Malachi's name means my messenger. And so he is a messenger of God to the people of God to help them understand what God requires of them. And if you've ever read through the book of Malachi, you'll know and remember that the book is framed around a series of conversations or really more disputes between God and his people. And those disputes really draw out what the Lord requires of his people. So what I'm going to do this morning is take a few of those disputes and pull them together. And I actually think that what they show us is three marks of covenant faithfulness. Everybody say three marks of covenant faithfulness. That's a lot of talking this morning. There you go. Three marks of covenant faithfulness. It's the things that God requires of his people, not just in the Old Testament, but in any age. The covenant always looks like this. It gives rise to these things among the people of God. So we're going to jump into those things in a moment. But before we get there, can we just pause our hearts in the presence of God, begin to lift up our spirits once again before him. And we say with the psalmist, whom have we in heaven but you, O God? And earth has nothing that we desire besides you. Our flesh and our hearts may fail us, but God is the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. We thank you that you are here, as we said in the last song, you are working in our midst and we worship you. 
This morning, in these moments, we ask that these ancient texts of Scripture would be more to us than just ancient texts of Scripture. We ask that what Paul wrote of the Scriptures would prove true to us. He said that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God is equipped for every good work. So we ask that the breath of the Almighty would blow upon us through the words of Scripture, that you would wake us up once again and remind us of what it means to be your people in your world. Grant this, we're asking. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people in the house said, Amen. Mark number one, Mark number one is that we give God our first and our best, and God promises to cover and provide for us. Look down at Malachi chapter one and verse six. The Lord says, a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect that's due me, says the Lord Almighty? But it's you priests who are showing contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But but you ask, how have we defiled you? And you do this by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. For when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? And when you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Said the Lord Almighty, now plead. With God to be gracious with us, with such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. Look over at chapter 3 and verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, they, you have not been destroyed because I'm with you. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return to you? Will a mere mortal rob God, the Lord says. But you ask, how are we robbing you? Well, I'll tell you in tithes and in offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said, thanks be to God. Here are God's people. They have been carried along by the Lord in his limitless kindness for centuries and centuries and centuries. God over and over and over again has exhausted himself to see to it that these people are taken care of. Their lives were broken to pieces in exile and the spirit of the living God brooded over them as a hen broods over her chicks and The Spirit of God brought them home and rebuilt their national life. They got everything back. They got the city back and the wall back and the temple back. And here they are just several decades later, and they're right back at it. They're coming into the house of God, and the priests are not offering to the Lord what they ought to be offering to the Lord. What they're giving to the Lord are blemished sacrifices, animals that are blind or lame or defiled in some way. What they're doing is they're giving the scraps of the flock to the Lord and the people of God who are required to give the first and the best of their income to the Lord to make sure that worship in the house of God would be taken care of and to make sure that widows and orphans in their distress would be taken care of in the house of God. They're just sort of being negligent in 
their responsibility, their obligation to the Lord. And the Lord is like, what are you doing? But do you not understand the circumstance and the scenario? I mean, you wouldn't do this with the governor. Heck, you wouldn't even treat your best friends like this. You might not even treat your mother-in-law who you don't like very much like this, you know? I mean, like, think about when you have people over to your house, like the minimum standard requirement for hospitality is like, don't give people your garbage, okay? When you have friends over to your house and you're wanting to show them a good time, what you don't do is prepare at the last minute for them and then kind of when they show up, you open the refrigerator and you go, let's see, what's the closest to being expired here? Oh, give that to them, right? You don't do that. What do you give when you have people over? You give them something that you've thought through, that you put time and intentionality behind. You give them your best. So it is, Malachi says, with the Lord Almighty. We're called to give him our first and our best. We give him off the top. We yield our strength to the Lord. And Malachi says that when you do that, somehow what happens is it hooks you into the divine economy. The Lord says that you're going to offer your strength to me, and what you'll find is that I pour my strength back into you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and test me. It's the only time, by the way, in Scripture that the Lord calls us to test him. He says, test me in this thing and in this thing alone, that you give your first and your best to me, and what you discover is that I throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the first and best marks of the covenant is that we give God our first and our best, that we don't just give him our scraps. And the truth is that this carries over right into the New Testament. Paul, writing to the believers at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, puts it like this. He says, remember this, I love this, that whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. When I do this, I need you to talk back at me, okay? And each of you should give what you decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we don't do it begrudgingly. We're not sort of complaining as we do it, but we do it as a sacrifice, as an offering. We do it with joy in our hearts. And this is what Paul says, that God is able to bless you, what? Abundantly, so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they've freely scattered their gifts to the poor and their righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Guys, Paul is not some, first, some 21st century slick prosperity preacher. Just saying, hey, you know, if you give to my ministry, God is going to like give you all the cool stuff. That He's not that. Paul knew hardship. Paul knew difficulty. Paul knew anguish. Paul knew despair. And yet he's writing this to these believers and he's saying, just so you know, when you hook yourself into the divine economy by surrendering your resources to the Lord, God, just like he promised in Malachi, he will cover you and protect you and provide for you. This, brothers and sisters, the people of God have been discovering over and over and over and over again. For centuries they've been discovering this. 
that their God is not just asking for the first and the best and then just kind of going off and doing something else, but he's covering them and caring for them. And I can bear witness to this personally. I've been tithing all of my life. I've been a Christian all my life. I've been tithing all of my life. And you know how my tithing life got started? It's like four or five years old, you know, and I'd uh, be my birthday, and i get $50 from friends, people that came to the birthday party, and you know what my mom would do? Five bucks, straight off the top. Just like that. That's going to Jesus. You know, I think to myself, but what about the not reluctantly or under compulsion part? You know what I mean? Like, how, like the spiritual IRS. My mom, just before I even had a chance to have it, it was gone. But I'm so glad that she did that because it instilled the value. It instilled the habit in me. And as I made my way through my adolescent years, Mandy and I got married. I was 19. She was 20. We're going on 21 years of marriage here. All of our married life, we've been tithing to the Lord even when we made hardly anything, even when on paper it seemed like it would be a better thing to just kind of use our money for ourselves and then give God whatever was left over. We always gave God the first and always gave God the best that we had. And I'm telling you, you can say that you trust God. <laughs> you can say that you believe that God is the kind of God that meets all of our needs according to his riches and glory, but it's not until you write the check and surrender strength that you could have used to make your life continue to operate, that's when you find out if you really trust God and what you discover is that as you write that check, somehow faith begins to awaken in you. That all of a sudden you begin to discover afresh, and we have discovered it over and over and over again, that every time we write that check and every time we put money in the offering, what happens is that new fresh sense of radical dependence awakens in our heart. And I look back now on 21 years of marriage, and I can tell you this without hesitation or equivocation, that God has met all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He has. And those of you that have been lifetime tithers in this room, you know that that is true that God comes through, and it's not always the way that you want, and it's not always when you want, and sometimes it's not always as much as you would prefer, but he always has this way of coming through. We have had plenty of seasons in our life when we tithed, we gave God the first and the best, and we'd watch the money drain out of the account, and we'd look up in the cupboards, and it's half a jar of peanut butter and a loaf of bread, and we're just wondering how we're going to make it. I'm telling you, every single time God has come through, the Lord said to his people in the Old Testament, he said, you have seen how I have cared for you these 40 years in the desert, how I've carried you as a father carries his children. And for these 40 years, you have lacked nothing. The psalmist said in Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not be in want. Jesus said that we were called to pray for daily bread, that what we do continually is we offer our lives up to the Lord and he promises to cover and bless us and provide for us. Some of you are on the fence in your relationship with God. And I'm telling you, one of the quickest ways to put faith in motion is to begin to tithe, to surrender your strength to the Lord and find that he's more than capable of meeting all of your needs. Now, one of the pitfalls here is that sometimes Christians use these promises in scripture as a sort of ticket or an excuse or an invitation to manipulate God, to get God to do what we would like him to do when we would like him 
to do it. And so what we think is that uh, tithing is like putting a quarter in a Coke machine or something. You know, you'll just get out whatever it is you want. And what, one of the things that I have learned over the years is that God promises to protect us and cover us and provide for us, but it's not always exactly the way that we would have wanted or in the timing that we would have wanted. When I was a senior in high school, I remember getting ready to go off to college and I had taken the ACT test three times and had done reasonably well on it. And the school that I wanted to go to, I knew that if I got my ACT score just one notch higher, it was going to result in like significant scholarship money for me. So I found it was just before the deadline and I found one more place, one more opportunity to take the ACT. It was about 60 days away. So this is what I decided to do. Number one, I'm going to study my butt off. I'm definitely going to get this money. And number two, I'm going to double tithe. You know, like if God promises to throw open the floodgates of heaven for 10%, what will he do for 20%, you know? And I just remember thinking that that was like a big deal. Now, of course, I look back on it and I was 18 at the time and I was working at a restaurant waiting tables. And so double tithe, what? Does that mean? Is that a $30 difference in my tithe every couple weeks or something? But to me, it felt like a big deal. And every time I would write that check or put the money in the offering, I just like in my mind, I was like, God, I just know you've promised to meet all of my needs according to your riches and glory. And so I am definitely going to get this score that I need on the ACT test. And I studied my butt off and I did all that double tithing. And I got to the night before the test and I was as sick as I have ever been in my entire life. Headache, nausea, chills, fever, couldn't sleep. I like had COVID before COVID was a thing, you know? And I remember waking up that morning and I just felt awful and I dragged my butt into the test. And I remember opening that test, you know, they said you got however long to complete it. And I remember opening it and looking at the test and thinking to myself, this may as well have been written in Russian. <laughs> I, I don't understand what you're asking me. I just got to the point where I just went B, C, B, C, right? The worst of the four tests. And I just have to think that the Lord was up in heaven going, oh, you think that you get to twist my arm into doing stuff? No, 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 little one. <laughs> That's not how it works. I will cover you and I will bless you and I will provide for you, but I will not be manipulated by you. Do not ever forget that the one that we serve is almighty God, the father, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And tithing is an invitation for us to enter into his life not an invitation for us to try to drag him into our timetable and our way of doing things. Are you with me? And God has paid for all of those bills. Thanks be to God. He just did it in his way and in his time. Brothers and sisters, the invitation in the first mark of the covenant is that we give, our God, we give God our first and our best and God promises to cover and provide for us. Mark number two, mark number two that Malachi draws our attention to is that we as members of the covenant community, what we do is we prioritize relationships, especially family relationships. Look down at Malachi chapter 2 and verse 12. Malachi asks, Do we not all have one Father? And did not one God create us? Then why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? So it's not just that they were being unfaithful to God, 
but they were being unfaithful in their relationships to one another. And as you read the rest of chapter 2, what you see is that what Malachi has particularly in mind is the relationship between husbands and wives. Their faithfulness to the marriage covenant was an evidence or lack thereof of their faithfulness to God. And so he's calling them back into that. Now look at the end of Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now, think about this for a second. The very last words of the Old Testament are a word of prophecy and promise that God is going to restore family relationships. I don't know if you understand this or you know this, but the family matters to God. It's not incidental to the redemptive work that God brings about in Christ our Lord. When you think about the way that the story of the Old Testament unfolds, it's the story of family breakdown. Adam and Eve and the sin that crawls into that relationship, Cain and Abel and the violence that crawls into that relationship, and all of the fallout that ensues from that is a fallout that takes place because of the family. And what is God's solution to that fallout? Do you remember what it is? What happens in Genesis 12? God calls a family, calls Abram, and says that I'm going to bless you and your family, and you will be a blessing. In other words, as you walk with me, what happens is that restorative, redemptive work that you walk in is going to redound to the benefit of the nation's around you. The redemptive work of God in Christ is always aimed at, at families. When God makes a covenant community out of Israel, he does it for Israel as a family. The families and the clans and the tribes. Israel is not just sort of this uh, 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 sort of uh, halfway related to one another nation state. No, it's a large family. <laughs> And God is trying to save the family. And when you think about even the New Testament, maybe you've noticed this, that as you read through the letters of the Apostle Paul, for instance, Paul will go into elaborate detail explaining and painting in vivid colors the redemptive work of God in Christ, all that God has accomplished for us in Christ our Lord. He's the beginning of the image. He's the beginning. He's the image of the invisible God, the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, Paul will say he's, he's, he's the one through whom God is restoring all things in heaven and on earth. Paul will paint with these vivid colors, but then when Paul gets to the place in his letters, when he starts talking to us about, like, what does this mean? Like, what are we supposed to do about it? Do you know who, who he always puts in the crosshairs first? Families. Like, after all that we've talked about, the resurrection from the dead, the renewal of all things is underway. So what are you going to do about it? And Paul will say, this is what you're going to do about it. Husbands, love your wives. And wives, love your husbands. Parents, don't be harsh with your children. Children, obey and honor your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But Paul sees that this great redemptive work piles into the family. Brothers and sisters, how do we show that we belong to the covenant community? We prioritize our relationships with one another, particularly relationships in the family. In this regard, I always think of the great statement of Mother Teresa. So often people would come to her and they would say, Teresa, what can we do to change the world like you're changing the world? And you know what she would say? Go home and love your family. 
Guys, there is so much loneliness and there is so much bitterness and there is so much ache and there is so much agony in our worlds. If we as the people of God would just begin to prioritize our families, so much that's wrong with our world would begin to come right. I cannot tell you how often I sit with people who are in crisis or trouble or disillusionment or they're, dre- they're, they're finding they're, 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 they're in a place that's just the, the, where it feels like the bottom is falling out. And when I'll talk with them about what's going on in their lives and they trace back their life issues, it almost always comes back to breakdowns that are happening in the family. Guys, we're called to prioritize our families. I think about it so often as a minister. I think about how easy it is for us, for me, to prioritize everybody else's relationships and everybody else's family and not prioritize my own, which is why Mandy and I have made it a priority. Once a week, we take a little date time with each other. Friday afternoon, we go out to lunch and we sit across the table and check in on each other. How are you doing? What's going on? What are you hoping for? What are you dreaming of? What are you dreading? Is there anything that I can do better? We're doing that because we believe that this is how we walk with the Lord. (laughs) Is that we take seriously the covenant that we've made with each other. I think about it with my kids. We always have Saturday morning breakfast with the kids. It's a time for us to check in with one another and see how we're doing and to hear hopes and dreams and expectations every night with my kids. I still, my kids now, they're teenagers. You know, Ethan is going to be 15 this summer. How did that happen? He's a man. He just, in the last month, he's taller than me now. I'm looking up to my son and still, still, always, at the end of the night, every night, right before bed, I go down into Ethan's room and I grab him by the sides of his face and I say, Ethan, I love you. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And when I finish with Ethan, I go to Gabe. And when I finish with Gabe, I go to Bella. And when I finish with Bella, I go to Liam. Because we want our home to be a place where the kingdom of God dwells richly. Brothers and sisters, this is what we've been called to. If we treat our homes with the kind of seriousness that God expects, I wonder what would change in our world. And I know that it is not easy. I know that it's not easy. This is one of the reasons why in our culture we often say, well, family is whoever you decide to have in your life as family. We elect our own family. The reason we say that is because families are hard, but the hardness of them is actually part of the sanctification, guys. It's part of the call of God on our lives. And I've talked to so many people over the years that they have done everything that they can to try to bring the kingdom into their families, and still it seems like they're hitting walls. And their ache and their agony for their family members has just like reached this fever pitch. And I'll say to them over and over again, listen, your call in that place where things with your family are not working the way that they should and where it's hard and where it's fraught and where it's difficult, you know what your call in that place is? Your call is to take that ache and that agony and that sense of helplessness and turn it into intercession for your family. That's how you can fulfill the covenant obligation for your family is that every time you feel that burden in your soul for your husband who's not following the Lord or for your wife who's caught up in some kind of foolishness or your children who are wayward in some way, when you feel that pang rise up in your soul, do you know what you're going to do? Hit the deck and begin to pour out your heart in prayer and intercession for them. Who else, I'll say to these people, who else will pray for your family like you will pray for your family? 
Who else will intercede for your kids like you're going to intercede for your kids? Who else will intercede for your spouse like you will intercede for your spouse? When you do that, you are embodying the high priesthood of the great high priest to those people. Pray, pray, pray. The great theologian Karl Barth said that prayer is the beginning of the uprising against the ungodliness of the world. Brothers and sisters, when we pray, God moves, and he moves in our families. Give yourself over to that. So the first mark is that we give God our first and our best, and the second mark is that we prioritize relationships, particularly relationships with people in our family. But the third mark is that we make the cause of the vulnerable our own. We make the cause of the vulnerable our own. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 5, Malachi writes, so I will come and put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages. So stop. Sorcerers, go back. One slide. I will put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify. And just think, would you just pause for a second? (laughs) And just think about what Malachi is saying here. People of God are going to be put on trial, and those who are sorcerers, okay? So like, Witches or wizards, all right? (laughs) Sorcerers and then adulterers and perjurers. But then all of a sudden we shift against those who what? Defraud laborers of their wages. In other words, people that are depending upon this income to take care of their daily needs. If you swindle them out of that in some way or mistreat them, you're being put on the same level, okay? as sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, those who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but don't fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Everywhere in Scripture you see this, if you open your eyes to it, that God demands of his people that they make the cause of the vulnerable, the poor, the oppressed, the alien, the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow, they make the cause of those people who are on the underside of power their own cause, okay? You could go just about anywhere in the scriptures and you will find this. You will find this. You just need to begin to open your eyes to it. And one of the reasons, actually maybe the central reason that the Lord calls his people to do this is because at one time they also were on the underside of power. They were slaves in Egypt. They were oppressed. They were mistreated. And the Lord came to their rescue delivered them up out of Egypt, and then turned them around and said, now that I have done this for you, your call is to do this for other people. The rescued become the rescuers. That the way that the Lord has loved them, the way that the Lord has treated them, they turn around and treat other people. And God takes this with incredible seriousness. One of the things that you'll see over and over again in the law and the prophets is that if the people of God are negligent in this responsibility, or worse, if they begin to mistreat and oppress the alien, the orphan, the fatherless, and the widow, God says to his people that he will treat them just like he treated their oppressors. Guys, this is a mark of the covenant, and it's not just confined to the Old Testament. In the New Testament, from the lips Of the Lord Jesus himself, Jesus says, Then the righteous will answer him at the end of all things, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And then the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, 
whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, uh, you'll be able to make a nice little, uh, you'll be able to count that as a tax deduction on your taxes at the end of the year. The lowest possible reason for doing nice stuff to other people is that it's just kind of a kind act of benevolence and I also get a little tax break, you know, there's like a little write-off. The highest possible reason is the reason that the Lord Jesus himself gives us. That whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did directly unto God. I'm not here to prescribe how this looks for you. I'm just here to tell you that your obligation, wherever you find yourself into life, in life, is to look out for those that are beneath you in some way. Those that you have the power to help, those who are, who are being mistreated or oppressed, you, if you have the power, you have the obligation at the same time to raise your voice for them. And we take this seriously as a church. Pastor Brad was talking about the transitional housing that we support. That's an evidence of this. When you think about what we're doing with the free women's clinic, the dream centers, when you think about Mary's home, that's what that is. We're not just doing it because it's a nice something to do. We're doing it because we believe that how we treat single moms on the streets, that's how we treat Jesus. That's how we feel about Jesus. This church gave away 86,000 pounds of food to hungry people in Colorado Springs last year. Do you know, yeah, give God praise. Give yourselves a pat on the back for that. Do you know why we did that? Because we believe that as we have done unto them, so we have done unto him. 300,000 meals last year to the school that we support in Guatemala. Why did we do that? Because whatever we've done to the children in Guatemala, we have done for him. Guys, this is our call. We're called as the rescued to be the rescuers. And the funny thing about this is that we don't always get to choose the time and the place where this happens. Years ago, we had this family move into our neighborhood and we got just initially when we met this family, we knew that they were pretty rough around the edges. The kids seemed to be kids that were not taken care of very well. They were somewhat neglected. They had sort of odd social habits and they were always sort of showing up at our house around the most like random and strange times, you know, inopportune times. And we'd be sitting down for dinner, you know, and They'd knock at the door wanting to play. I feel bad, you know, we got to shoo them off. Or we'd be sitting down for a family movie and, you know, ding dong, you know, we got to tell them, no, we come back later. And they're just the strangest kids coming at the most inopportune times. And it got to the point where these kids were like this huge annoyance to us. And one of them, a little girl named Sarah, it was just Sarah, was, she picked the worst times to show up at our house. And it just got to the point where it was just like annoying and obnoxious and da, da, da. And I remember reading that text in Matthew one morning from my devotional time. That whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And I remember that just hit me so hard. And, oh, oh. See, sometimes the easy thing to do when we think about even taking care of the orphan and the widow and the homeless and all of that is that we write checks and we take care of those people out there that really need help and we forget to take care of the people that the Lord has placed in our lives that really need help. And I was so convicted by that. And so that night at dinner, we sat down to a family dinner and I, when dinner was over, I opened to Matthew 25 and we talked through that whole thing. And I said to my kids, I said, so here's the deal. From the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ 
himself that how we treat those kids, and in particular, little Sarah, how we treat them and how we treat her is how we feel about Jesus. So I said, guys, this is what we're going to do. The next time, and it doesn't matter when, the next time we hear that knock at the door, the next time we hear the doorbell ring, and we know that it's one of them or it's little Sarah, we are going to rush to the door and we are going to open it up and we are going to welcome her presence as though we were welcoming the presence of the Lord Jesus himself. I said, you all got that? Are we good? Are we on the same page? Everybody we go, yes, dad, right? Family lecture time. We don't like it. It's uncomfortable. Get us out of here. Yes, we got it, dad, right? And I'm not kidding. As God is my witness. Two seconds later, Sarah, so good to see you. That's who we are, guys. We're God's people who believe that in the face of the alien and the orphan and the widow and the fatherless and the oppressed, in the face of the child who's not being taken care of, we are seeing the face of the Lord Jesus, third mark of the covenant. We make the cause of the vulnerable, our own. Can I get an amen? amen? But that's not all Malachi has to say to us. See, here we sit now, a hundred years after the people of God have returned from exile, rebuilt the city, rebuilt the temple, rebooted their national life. And after all of the thunderous denunciations and exhortations, of the prophets and all of the long history of Israel, still, 100 years later, they're still being unfaithful to God. The worst thing that could happen to Israel did happen to them. Their national life was shattered and everywhere the, the prophets interpret this as the discipline of the Lord that hopefully will provoke them to righteousness. And now we're back in the land and we're still being unrighteous. What in the world is going to make a difference for the people of God? If exile doesn't fix it for you, what is going to fix it for you? And Malachi says this in Malachi chapter three and verse one, he looks ahead to this great coming day in which the Lord says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Do you know how you refine gold and silver? You burn it in the fire. <laughs> You melt it down to the uttermost, and then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, verse 4, and offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in the former years. As it turns out, here we are at the end of the long story of the people of God, at the end of the book of the Twelve. And no amount of the people of God's pulling themselves up by their spiritual or moral bootstraps was enough to make them faithful before God. Because as it turns out, human effort just isn't enough to get the job done, and Malachi knows it. 
And so he looks ahead to the end of history and he sees that there's this figure that's coming that's not just going to tell the people of God what to do, but is going to melt them down, change them so that they're able to do the will of God from the heart. And we know the name of this messenger of the covenant, don't we? His name was Jesus the Lord, who took our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Guys, he is the one, the one faithful Israelite from among all of the Israelites who is faithful to God. He's the one who gave God his first and his best, wasn't he? And he's the one who prioritized relationships, particularly those relationships in his family, and we are his family, wasn't he? And he is the one who made the cause of the vulnerable his own, wasn't he? And as the scripture everywhere says, as we surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens is that he makes of us new creations who are able to do the will of God from the heart. The only way we live up to what God has called us to do is by flinging ourselves at the feet of Jesus. Let's stand and prepare our hearts for communion. We're getting ready in a week here. Christians around the world will celebrate the beginning of Holy Week, Palm Sunday. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And he rides in to be crucified, to be killed, and to be raised to life. Brothers and sisters, when we come to the table of the Lord, what we're doing is we're remembering that unless the Lord Jesus comes riding into our lives, there's no shot that we have at righteousness. And so I want to invite you now as we prepare ourselves for the table of the Lord to make this prayer your own. It's a prayer of confession. It's a prayer of acknowledgement before the Lord of the many ways in which we have not lived up to his standard and his call. And it's an invitation for him to make us new. Let's say it together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will. Do that, O oh God, and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And so, Spirit of the living God, we invite you into our lives again afresh today. We ask that you would come into our spirits, that you would make us new. The scripture says that if anybody is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is come. And so we ask for an invasion of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our lives, that you would make of us a people who are your very own, eager to do what is good. But grant that we're asking this morning in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. We're gonna sing this song of worship and then Pastor Brad is gonna lead us to the table. Let's sing together. Silver, purify. 